TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Don't know when you're going to hit a home run. Obviously, it takes a pitcher, it takes a pitch, it takes a good swing. I'm ready. Ready for the fight. <laughs> Watching those two guys, it was poetry. It ain't coming back. We got Mark, they got Sammy. Didn't know anything about Sammy Sosa until he had 20 home runs in June. The Maris record was hallowed ground. If it was easy to do, it would have been broken a long time ago. People were desperate for a feel-good story. In retrospect, there was a price to pay for it. Story and the price, the nexus of the Sosa McGuire documentary. Two rivals, two rival teams, longtime rivals. And they will be having a, it was fun in the summer, and yet we end up feeling a little dirty about it. Welcome in, welcome back. Steve Rosenblum, Mark Rohde with you, Chicago Sports Radio 670 to score. Joining us now on the Alpamonte Ford Hotline, Alpamonte Ford in Melrose Park is a man whose voice you heard, a man whose voice you will hear, a man who, a man who was um, watching with great interest that home run race, the uh, Sosa McGuire home run race. He's Bob Costas. Bob, thanks for joining us today. Welcome in. Hey guys, how are you? We're doing well. I I wanted to point it out. I pointed it out earlier, and I want to get your thoughts on this. I, you were you were the klaxon. When shortly after it took forever for Cecil Fielder to hit 50 home runs in 1990, the first time somebody had reached 50 since George Foster in 77. And six years later, the stick figure known as Brady Anderson is hitting 52. And you were mentioning, you were saying on national broadcasts, something here is wrong. And we found out how things were changing. So walk us from that time through the home run race that gave everybody a lot of thrills and then maybe made some of us feel dirty about enjoying ourselves. Well, just briefly, I knew that something was out of whack. And so I tried to hint at that in general terms. What I didn't know was exactly what. Was it entirely possible that this was doable because of stuff you could buy at the GNC used in proper amounts? Maybe stuff that should have been illegal and not available over the counter, but was combined with sophisticated modern weight training, and maybe the ball was juiced or whatever it may have been, other factors. I knew that something was significantly out of whack, but it would have been irresponsible to point a finger at anybody. And by the time you get to the summer of 98, 
even speaking in general terms, even saying something's wrong here. There must be performance-enhancing drugs. They test for them in the Olympics and in other sports. Why don't they do it in baseball? That would be tantamount to an accusation aimed at McGuire and Sosa because they were the focus at that point. So I was skeptical, and as you said, I hinted at it in general ways on national broadcasts. But I was in no position, nobody was, to make specific accusations at that point. And then there was this, and I don't think this is incidental. The fact that it was St. Louis and Chicago. St. Louis, as we all know, is a wonderful baseball town. It's passionate and knowledgeable, but even in this modern era of snark, it's generally good-natured. And back then, it was especially good-natured. Every time Sammy Sosa came to the plate in that early September series, which the schedule maker or the baseball gods just happened uh, to arrange so that both of them would be closing in on 60 that weekend, every time Sosa came to the plate, he got a standing ovation, an appreciative ovation from the Cardinal fans. So here you have McGuire in this sort of baseball heaven of St. Louis. And here you have Sammy Sosa with all of his exuberance at the friendly confines of Wrigley Field for the adorable Cubbies. And, yeah, it's a rivalry, but it's not an at-your-throat rivalry, especially then, like the Yankees and the Red Sox. And even in 98, the Cubs surprisingly made the playoffs, but the Cardinals were not a playoff contender. So there was no real bad blood. It was all a feel-good thing, both in the two cities and then nationally, because people who wanted to embrace baseball again had begun to come around with Cal Ripken, breaking Gehrig's record, but that was one night, even though there were many games, obviously, that led up to it. That was one night. McGuire and Sosa were a season-long march for this hallowed record. And even though we now view it, not just with skepticism, but there's a, a thousand asterisks after it, and also after Barry Bonds' 73, remember that night when he got to 62, and eventually, actually, Sammy overtook him, which is also part of the documentary, Tomorrow night, Sammy briefly went back into the lead before McGuire surged at the end and wound up with 70. That night, here's Sosa coming from right field to embrace McGuire. Here's McGuire lifting up his adorable young son. And then McGuire going into the stands and embracing the Maris family and telling the press that the bat, the Roger Maris bat that they brought from the Hall of Fame, he said, I touched it. I touched it with my heart. You'd have to be Scrooge to want to deflate that happy bubble of, of baseball romance that was floating over both St. Louis and Chicago. So even though I was skeptical about it, I certainly didn't want to damage the feeling, and I don't think any of us did. All right, so Bob, then did your private, as you're saying, skepticism of what was going on in 1998 hurt your enjoyment of it? Uh, a little, a little bit, but I don't know Sammy very well. Just said hello to him a few times. I know McGuire very well since his rookie year with the Oakland A's. We have always had a good relationship. And my kids who are adults now were 12 and nine at that point. They're reveling in it as Cardinal fans. In fact, when McGuire goes up into the stands, you guys won't recognize it because it's just a fleeting moment. But when he goes up into the stands, I can see the beaming face of my then 12-year-old son just a few rows behind them in that shot. This was such a feel-good thing that it was impossible not to appreciate it. But at the same time, not knowing the chemistry of it, but you could see the changes in the bodies 
And it wasn't just those two guys. And Bonds hadn't, by all accounts, begun to really juice yet. But there were other guys. Lenny Dykstra was listed at 5'9 and 165 or 170. And in the late 80s, he came back after the end of one season and spring training the next, just a few months later. And I'm in Florida traveling around spring training sites. Lenny Dykstra looked like he'd been inflated with a bicycle pump. Now, because he was Lenny Dykstra, he wasn't going to hit 50 home runs. But this was, you know, throughout the game. So something was happening. And then the other thing is just the numbers. When McGuire hit his 62nd home run, it came in his 440th at bat. Roger Maris hit his 61 in an expansion year with Mickey Mantle hitting behind him, never received a single intentional walk, which meant that apart from intentional walks, they weren't working around him all that much because Mantle, who slugged almost 700 and hit 54 homers of his own that year, is batting behind him. Under all those circumstances, Roger Maris hit 61 home runs in 590 at-bats. McGuire hit 62 in 150 fewer at-bats. It just distorted all norms. And then three years later, Bonds distorted them further. But by that time, we had enough information, circumstantial, and Ken Caminiti came out not long after that in a Sports Illustrated cover story. Even before they got to Congress in 2005, I think it was fair game then to comment on the circumstances. We're talking with Bob Costas here on Chicago Sports Radio 670, The Score, Sosa McGuire, Doc, Long Gone Summer. Bob, we're, you, you'd mentioned about the romance. That was a, a that home run race like we'd never seen before, and it really was the original joke. That's a home run race on steroids. But what mm-hmm. baseball holds that no other sport can is the love of numbers. Its records yep. are so well known. No other sport does. You have a longtime romanticist about baseball, and there are certain numbers I've held dear that I've just sort of let go. What do you do about them? How do you treat them now? What would you recommend to baseball fans who used to think 714 was a big deal? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I've said this forever. Even avid basketball fans don't know Kareem's lifetime point total. (laughs) And then he would be surprised to know that Moses Malone, and not Moses, Carl Malone, is wedged in between Kareem and Michael Jordan. Jordan is third, and Malone is second. Nobody knows what Jim Brown's rushing record was before Walter Payton broke in, and now what Emmett Smith's number is. They know these guys were great. They don't know Dan Marino's touchdown pass numbers, and then Brett Favre, and now Drew Brees, or whatever. They just don't. It just doesn't matter as much. But in baseball, even casual fans, no 406. They know 56 consecutive games. They knew 714 and they knew 61. And those were big numbers. And Hank Aaron's 755, a legitimate, authentic, and revered number. Now, everybody has a mental asterisk next to as great as Barry Bonds was. And here's the irony Barry Bonds was an all time great player on his natural merits, not just a Hall of Famer, an inner circle Hall of Famer. In the discussion among the greatest all around players of all time, on his natural merits, but that doesn't mean you have to think that what he did on steroids was authentic. It's inauthentic. Now, your question was, what can baseball do? I've suggested going back a number of years, something that they don't appear inclined to do. I think the first page of the record book would say, before you get to any of the numbers, baseball has the longest history of any American team sport, And its records are more relevant and its generational comparisons more compelling than any other sport. 
but there have always been different circumstances and conditions under which these performances took place. Segregated, integrated, mostly train travel or entirely train travel, now mostly airplane travel. 16 teams, now up to 30 teams. Changes in the importance of relief pitching, changes in equipment, entirely day ball, mostly night ball. And prominent among these change conditions is the so-called steroid era, and we can delineate it, whatever beginning when and ending or tapering off whenever they want. Keep these conditions in mind or changes in circumstances in mind as you evaluate the numbers and performances and records which appear on the pages that follow. They could do something like that, but it doesn't appear that they will. So does that mean that somebody like Sammy Sosa, in in your opinion, could get or should get voted into the Hall of Fame, but there should be a big blinking light in the Hall of Fame that says this was during the steroids era? Well, here's the way I see it. And I don't expect everybody to think exactly the way I do on any of these issues. I would vote if I had a vote. And as you guys know, it's only baseball writers who have a vote. I would vote. I would have withheld it early on. But by now, I would have voted for Barry Bonds and I would have voted for Roger Clemens because as best I can determine, they had already qualified not just as Hall of Famers, but in the discussion among the all-time best before they pushed into the stratosphere inauthentically, especially Bonds. Now, someone like Tom Verducci, who I have the utmost respect for, says no. If there's compelling reason to believe that the person juiced even in the last season of their career, I'm not voting for that person. Okay, fine. But the way I see it is that people like Bonds and perhaps Clemens are in a different category. I cannot believe that Sammy Sosa would have had, I can't believe with certainty, that Sammy Sosa would have had Hall of Fame credentials without steroids. In the case of Mark McGuire, I think he likely, provided he could have remained reasonably healthy, he likely would have been a Harmon Killebrew type Hall of Famer. Not, a, not an all-time great all-around player, but a great power hitter with Hall of Fame numbers. But we don't know that for sure, and so he can't get the benefit of the doubt as much as I'd like to give it to him. Manny Ramirez, one of the great right-handed hitters of all time, but a three-time loser when it comes to being caught using drugs, and he quit on two different teams, openly quit on them. He was a terrible base runner and an indifferent fielder. So all that taken into account, I can disqualify him. I can disqualify Rafael Palmero, who has Hall of Fame numbers as well. So uh, I'm making an exception for the greatest of the great in that category, and everybody else is just kind of too bad. Our guest is Bob Costas here on The Score. We're talking Sosa McGuire Doc, uh, ESPN tomorrow. The Score will have a broadcast, live broadcast at 10 p.m. after the show, and it will feature Pat Hughes, Ron Coomer, and Bruce Levine. Bob, in the show, I've not seen it. I know you were in it. I imagine you've seen it, right? I I, I saw it uh, the other day, yeah. Okay, so does Sosa get asked, and does he answer directly, did you use steroids, and does he answer that directly, or does he do the whataboutism, or does he say, I never failed the test, or does he find, does he answer directly, I guess would be the question, if he gets asked at all? he, He doesn't answer directly, but it's pretty clear that he acknowledges it. He says, look, everybody was doing it at that time, and I don't feel bad. I feel happy. I'm paraphrasing here. I feel happy about what Mark and I did. 
we helped baseball. I have great memories of it. And he comes across, unless he's putting on an act, as someone who is not burdened, whose conscience is not terribly burdened by what happened. And he proclaims himself a very happy person, so he doesn't seem to be fretting over not being in the Hall of Fame. Uh, if there's one regret that he expresses, he says he'd like to reconcile with the Cubs, if reconcile is the right word. According to the documentary, he hasn't been asked back to Wrigley Field in more than a decade. And I, I think there's a difference between a team honoring someone and the Hall of Fame uh, giving its ultimate honor. For example, Mark McGuire, quite, quite fittingly, is in the Cardinals Hall of Fame, and he gets that red jacket that all the Cardinal Hall of Famers have. And some of the Cardinal Hall of Famers are in Cooperstown and some are not. It's just a different thing. Uh, and the fan base can acknowledge what those times meant and how much they enjoyed it. And maybe some have some misgivings or even anger about it. But I think a majority of Cub fans would like to see Sammy come back and, and have an acknowledgement of, of what he meant to the franchise and what he meant to baseball during that era, even if it was flawed. Is it fair if the Cubs demand, they haven't specifically said fess up, but that seems to be the indication. And if he were to do that, would this seem, I've compared it to Pete Rose finally admitting he bet on baseball. It's like, so what? I'm not, I'm, I'm so far from that. That's what it yeah. seems like to me. What does it feel like to you? What If he were to admit it? Well, now that you mention it, McGuire came out and acknowledged it um, in 2010, I guess it was, when he was preparing to come back into baseball officially and become the Cardinals hitting coach. And Tony La Russa told him, uh, you've got to acknowledge this in some way. Uh, and that is what he did. The difference between McGuire and even Sosa, regardless of their congressional testimony, and Pete Rose, is that Pete Rose, like Lance Armstrong, lied about it publicly over and over and over again. And, and even when he acknowledged it, it was in, in concert with the publication of a book that he was trying to sell. Mm -hmm. And it came out literally the week that Dennis Eckersley and Paul Molitor went into the Hall of Fame. And that really ticked everybody in baseball off. Uh, you know, should Pete Rose be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion? Yeah. And at the bottom of his plaque, it could say banned from baseball 1989 through the rest of his life for betting on the game. But somebody got those 4,000 plus hits and it was him. And so far as we know, uh, the gambling, if it took place when he was a player, that was close to incidental. Most of it was when he was a manager. I can see tempering justice with mercy in the case of Pete Rose because his baseball achievements as a player are authentic. The steroid guys fall into a different category. Bob, we're going to let you go here in a second, but there was something great that happened in the 90s. 11-10-90, there was a Saturday Night Live skit called Enchilada, and oh Bob, Costa, Bob Costas was a part Whoa. of that. And every time I hear your name, and Steve too, because we're both big SNL fans, we say it like that, Bob Costas Tornado. <laughs> Adios. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. was pretty funny it was pretty well, funny and, and a lot of it was ad lib too uh we appreciate your time bob thanks thanks for your insight thanks. and and after seeing chicago saw so much of you on the last dance 
And now we'll yeah, see. Yeah, they've had enough in, of me by now. <laughs> well, I think, but I think what this does is underscore you as one of the two greatest basketball announcers alive. And yeah, I just think that's, that's right. That, that is the broadcast wing of the Basketball Hall of Fame. It's pretty much just me and Al Michaels. Right, as it should be. Announcers for a generation. Yeah. Bob, thanks for your time. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Mark. Take okay. care. Bye. All right. See you, Bob. That's Bob Costas. Yes. <laughs> Adios. Adios. That was it. There you go. So, um, so it was. I have not seen the screener of the of the doc, and he was. Uh, Sammy was asked, "Did you do it?" And then there was the whole whataboutism thing. Why? Why are you? Why are you worried about me? Everybody was doing it then. We just we just had fun, and and so I don't know. How does that? I don't know if that sits. But I don't think that changes anybody's opinion. Any well, that's thoughts, the, any emotions? That, that's the big. That's a big question for me, man. Is I I I think that, and I've said it several times that I think this is this might be this documentary might be the last call for Sammy Sosa in terms of rebuilding his image or it could squash his image for good um, because right now it seems like it's not good but then again and I don't know it's it, there was a there was a poll in the Chicago Sun Times I think it was done by Steve Greenberg in the Sun Times and it was asking people um, your take on Sosa being welcomed back to Wrigley Field. And just in this poll, I, I assume unscientific, 60% bring him back now, 28% only if he comes clean, 12% nope, never. So in other words, at least in this one poll, and I think it might have even just been a Twitter poll. So uh, take it for what it is, but at least in that snapshot, that's where people are right now. That surprises me. That surprises me that people are are that interested in him coming back. I think part of the reason might be, Steve, because people who were like in junior high then, like 11 and 12 years old, they loved Sammy. And he was something different to them than he was to you and I because they didn't care about steroids. They didn't know. They just knew he was this larger-than-life figure who hit <laughs> literally. Right. Yeah, yes, yes. Literally. Literally. Right. That's why, like, when I was a kid, I loved Dave, Dave Kingman because he hit massive home runs, and I didn't care that he was a jerk, that he was a bad guy. Um, so I, I think that now we have a, a different generation that are older now, in their 30s, and have a voice, and they love Sammy, and they know how Sammy made them feel so steroids be damned, bring him back and, and get him to Wrigley Field. And I intend, I tend to agree that he should at least be welcomed back to Wrigley Field. I think it's dumb that he hasn't been. Yeah, and the idea that he hasn't been because Tom Ricketts is expecting something he hasn't fully, completely outlined. There's, there's not much clarity there, but it just seems to be, admit what you did, Sammy's got to say stuff, and, and there's this passive-aggressive guilt thing going on with with Tom Ricketts, and and if he said, yeah, I did it, I, I you know, and, and we went over this before, that, yeah, I did it, I'm a, I'm a, I grew up a poor shoeshine boy, boy. I, right. I knew where the money was, and I knew what I could do, and and that was that, so I, I, I don't know how it would be received, but I think of most of the Cub fans, look, when you don't have sports now, that poll doesn't surprise me. With sports is not going on. Look, anything that looks like sports, we treated a a ten part documentary as live sports. <laughs> we will so treat true. the doc on Sosa McGuire as a live sport. 
we're so right. that's what we're, right. we're going to do. What, what are you doing, Wagner, is treated like a live sport because people are actually <laughs> doing something. All right, we'll yes. take a break, and we'll come back with some more nonsense. Uh, second half of this uh, hour, we will bring you a replay of Lawrence Holmes interviewing Theo Epstein, which was great stuff. He's Mark Grody. I'm Steve Rosenblum, Chicago Sports Radio 670, The Score. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device. Credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Welcome to Welcome Back. Steve Rosen with Mark Cody with you. Chicago Sports Radio 670 score. Saturday suckage. Just got done visiting with Bob Costas about Sosa McGuire documentary, The Home Run Race of 98. Um, we had earlier talked to um, Lawrence Holmes uh, about um, the special he'll have on. So let's keep these, these, let's let you know, Lawrence Holmes, our midday host, 12 to 2, on Monday through Friday on The Score. He will host Race in America, a candid conversation. It will be on NBC Sports Chicago tomorrow night at 7. We'll feature a panel of uh, pro athletes from the city, Jason Hayward, Alan Robinson, Thaddeus Young, and Sam Ocho. They'll discuss the death of George, the murder of George Floyd, and they'll comment on the state of race relations and the need for change in what they see. Tomorrow, after the McGuire Sosa documentary, 10 o'clock, we'll have live programming on the score in the form of Pat Hughes, Ron Coomer, and Bruce Levine. They'll be live on the score at 10 with a special show reacting and interacting with the audience about that. Pat broadcast all of Sammy's games that season. Ron played in the ML in MLB with Sammy and Bruce covered all the games. It should be a uh, really good uh, post game because that's it is Mark. That's where we are. Documentaries stand as live programming for us <laughs> these days. Well, and that's that why, you know, honestly, that's why it could be of consequence for Sammy Sosa and yeah. rebuilding or squashing his, his public image. I did receive any a couple of emails here. One one from you from earlier, ten forty six. I'm sorry, Steve, I hadn't seen that, so don't be mad that I didn't respond to it. It was about Mitch Trubisky cuts. And then <laughs> I have received an email from Toby. Oh. Is it is he getting is he bagging on uh, on um, Trash Panda again for being for blocking the gates to heaven? 
which is not calling not into our really, show. but what oh. we I don't know. We're gonna have to get some answers though, I think, because yeah, he what's says, going on? Hey. So <laughs> Toby reads this. Consumer complaint department. Yeah, the consumer be. complaint department. So Toby <laughs> writes this, and Toby, don't worry, man. I know you sent me another email that you didn't want me to read. I'm not going to read that. So Toby, if you're listening, oh. don't get don't get Dude, nervous. No, you um, piqued our interest. Bro. Um, no, he says, Hi Mark. Um, to help promote your list podcast, I will be calling today with my own list. Mine are only three items, but here we go. Here's part one. I will call with the number one answer plus another list titled Alternative Names from Mark Grody's List Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm sorry if I missed him. I have been a little busy today. Toby, if you're there, go ahead and call. We got a few minutes. Okay. Um, and then he said, I think this was a joke. I think this was a joke. He said, my favorite states that contain the letter N. The, that contain the letter, letter N. N. Nice. Illinois that, yeah. and California is what he has. And for number one, he puts question mark. I suppose he leaves that up to us. A show starter. A show stimulator. Because that'll be, get him going. New, it's got to be New Mexico, because he was the president of Albuquerque. So oh, it's got to yeah. be New Mexico. I'd go Nevada. Uh, yeah, well, okay. There it is. You it's know. certainly legal there. The uh, we, we did have a text while we were, I know this, I believe this is when we were talking with Lawrence and, and talking about Theo. And it regarded, what, well, you know, why don't we have Kenny Williams on? You know, we appreciate Theo talking out on this, but... Uh, why hasn't the inter- we we've tried? Trust me, he was on our list this week. We're not the only show that is asked to speak to him, and and he, here are some of the reasons why. Is that Kenny grew up in the Bay Area, where you had Black Panthers on one side of the street, you had hippies on the other side in Berkeley. He moved to San Jose. His godfather, first of all, is John Carlos, who was one of the athletes who held up a 1968 Olympics. Bronze medalist held up a black fist on the medal stand and was stripped of his medal because he dared protest that way silently. And that's usually what happens to silent protests like that. Hmm. So Kenny said they moved to San Jose. His father became the first of two black firefighters to be hired by the city of San Jose. But he had to sue to get the job, or in Kenny's words, to get the right to risk his life. And at the same time, his mother worked at Pacific Gas and Electric, and she's a woman trying to climb the executive ladder, which wasn't easy to do then. Trust me, we wanted Kenny's viewpoints. And he's choosing to, you know, there was a story, I can't remember where I read it. Was it the story where he has so avoided media? Actually, I think it was Ken Rosenthal in The Athletic that he turned down an interview request from his wife, TV reporter Zoraida Sambolin. So he's he's picking his spots and he's he'll speak out when he need, he'll, he'll always find a platform, but it's not like we didn't try to get him. You know why I don't think he speaks, he won't speak now and th- and this pisses me off and not not at Kenny. He won't speak because every time he talks Everybody gets angry and they think that he's undermining Rick Hahn or that he, he should let oh. other people be the voice now. Um, and that, that upsets me because every time he speaks, he's really interesting. And I'm not just mm. talking about on social justice. I'm talking about on baseball and everything else. But I think he finally, 
this is just my guess. I just think he's had it with with everybody in the media and fans pounding him every time he speaks and saying, you know, you you do your even though he is Rick Hahn's boss, and that that irritates me. That that whenever he the the guy who put together a World Series title winning team in 2005 gets ripped every time he talks. That's just my guess. I don't know. Yeah, uh, but, I, that's a good that's a good point. And he he's. Um, again, he's, he's limited what he said, uh, but it's not for lack of effort. It's not, we didn't, it's not like we didn't recognize he would be a terrific voice to hear from. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll bring you a replay of Lawrence Holmes' interview with Cubs uh, Ubermacher Theo Epstein. And it's terrific, compelling stuff. And um, Theo is taking himself to task to start with. I'm Steve Rosenblum. He's Mark Grody, Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. Dude, does it just suck being you? No. Saturday Suckage is what we do. Mark, we're done doing Saturday Suckage today. But it's only 1.39. I know, but what we're going to do is we're going to treat people to what happens when you don't suck, which is Lawrence Holmes' interview with Theo Epstein. That'll take you up to the top of the hour and which time Hub Arkish will be here from 2 to 6. That's it. Well, Steve, it's been fun, man. I will. Uh, I'll be on the radio tomorrow, noon to three. Incidentally, so I'll get a little. T- I'm going to have um, John Morosi from MLB on. I'm going to have Mark Potash on, and I may even play our Bob Costas interview tomorrow as well. Excellent, excellent. And the next week we'll hear about your list of lists, or maybe Toby will bring that to us. We thank everyone who listened, everyone who called, which is nobody, everyone who texted. And uh, right now we'll walk you up to Lawrence Holmes, who has brought on Theo Epstein. Here's a replay of that interview. Thanks for listening. The score. Theo, I know you take a lot of pride in the relationship that you build with players. Obviously, you're the president of the Cubs, so there's the connection to ownership as well. How does one go about straddling the line when there's negotiations like this going on where it can sometimes look contentious for those of us that are looking at it from the outside? How do you have to, to walk that line? That's a good question. You know, I, during negotiations like this, and they usually take place um, out, of the, you know, out of the spotlight. Right now, everyone is unfortunately getting a look at how the sausage is made and, and it's not always pretty um, especially in this case so it's unfortunate we wish we were just focusing on playing ball but um, when, when those types of negotiations happen it's really you know it's a select group at the commissioner's office and and, and the upper tier of the, of the union um, and, and their their player executive council they're really most involved obviously in this communication down through the ranks on both sides but um, I feel like a lot of people in the game um, stay in communication and, and talk about the issues and it doesn't become completely partisan. You know, it's not as if either side has to toe the party line that there's more an open, open engagement on the issues. And especially you know, if you've built up trusting relationships, you can talk about these issues. If you have developed some, you know, the skill of empathy, um, then you can have productive conversations on these topics with, 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 with folks on the other side or with folks from different perspective perspectives. Um, and, and it doesn't have to become, you know, pure lobbying or persuasion or, or adversarial in, in any way. So I think, I think you're seeing a lot of that across the game. I mean, 99.9% of people 
in this game, including me, are, are you know feel kind of as spectators in this and and just eager to to get back on the field. And that's I think that's where the players are coming from too. And obviously, there are important issues at stake, and it's very complicated. I'm not trying to minimize the discussions at all, but um, it's not as if it's not as if you know everyone in the game is dug in on one side or or another. Um, we know that there are negotiations going on and. Um, you know, we hope for a resolution that's best for the game of baseball going forward. That's all. It's clear that George Floyd's death has affected us as a nation. The, the, the global, globalizing of his death has affected all of us. Specifically, it seems to very much affected you, and the way that people respond to it affected you. How did it affect you? Well, I think you're right. I think it's affected all of us and that this really feels like an inflection point um, in our country and, and in our country's history. And, and that, you know, it feels different than other um, galvanizing moments in the past that have seemed like they were the start, uh, the beginnings of a movement and then have died off as, as our sort of collective attention span it dissipates. Um you know, I don't know. I, I've talked to a lot of people about why this one feels different or carrying so much weight. I, I do think, you know, perhaps the fact that um, with the pandemic, everyone was home with their families, uh, consuming the news. Um, the videotape evidence in this case is, you know, so so stark and undeniable and so tragic and senseless um, that. There's no rationalizing it. There's no explaining it away, and there's no averting your eyes either. There's no turning away from this, and and there's no turning away from the fact that this is not you know a one-time event. It's this is the type of thing that we're now seeing periodically. And I was following. Um, it's not it's not just you know police brutality either. I was following the Ahmed Arbery case really closely as as well, and, and obviously Breonna Taylor and all the other cases. So it's just undeniably um, uh, a pattern at this point and something that's um, systemic and, and institutionalized. And, and so, um, you know, it's moved a lot of people and sometimes you don't know how to react. You don't know what to do. And, and uh, that's why I think protest is, is so important. So you know, there's always one person who, who protests first and then, others who follow and, and then it becomes a movement and then it becomes, uh, there, there becomes real momentum. So, you know, seeing people, um, take to the streets and, and, and seeing people, um, stand up and seeing people raise their voice, it, it, it does create a, a real momentum in, in the country. And I think what it does is it causes people to take a fresh look at the way things are because the, the status quo can you know as horrible as it might be as unjust as it might be as much institutionalized racism as it might um uh have in it the status quo is easy to tolerate sometimes you know because we get so caught up in our own lives and the way things are that um you sometimes don't even recognize it you know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said um that you know, institutionalized racism can be like like dust particles in the air, where you don't even see it. It's all around you, but you don't even see it. And then a little bit of light comes into the room, and you realize it's everywhere. 
Well, I, you know, I think that's what that's what you know the the early reaction to the, to the George Floyd murder did for a lot of people is it let a little bit a little bit of light into the room, and so you know you do take take a moment to look around you with a fresh perspective, with new light in the room, and you, and you realize you know th- this is a time to do something because it's everywhere, and um, so the people in the streets are very very inspirational and I had a chance to ride my bike down to, to one of the rallies last week. And, you know, one thing you notice right away is it's, it's people um, of all races, it's people of all ages. These protests are happening all over the country, not just in big cities, uh, but in rural areas and the Rust Belt and the Bible Belt all over coast to coast. And, and then you notice that the, the young faces around you are the ones who are the most colorblind, you know, and this next generation really has it figured out. Um, it's it's on us to help pave a better path for them, and and, and if we can't, um, to get out of their way, you know, because they they are they are creating a more just future for this country, and so it's up to each of us if we want to be part of it. I think when all of us try to figure some of this stuff out, and we're talking with Theo Epstein here on the score, we're we're all looking at it as a, a big problem. What impressed me with you in particular is that you looked you were introspective in how it was impacting you and how it was impacting the game. So when it came time for you to look at hiring process, the structure of the way that the the Cubs are built in a front office standpoint, what were the things that made you kind of take notice and say, perhaps we can find a different way to do things? Yeah, well, I think those are the, I think the, the the best things you can do initially is 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 listen and then look look inside and look inward and look at your own situation and you know for me as a, as a leader in, uh, of this organization and and in baseball operations you have to look at your own decision making and examine that and see if perhaps you know you have your own um, you know unconscious biases that that exist. And, and, you know, as a leader, uh, all leaders, whether they, they like it or not, or whether it's intentional or not, they shape the culture around them. And so the, the environment of an organization is, is there, and, and the makeup of an organization, the demographics of an organization, is the responsibility of every leader, whether, you know, whether they like it or not. If you're being honest with yourself, um, you can impact that. You can take control of it, your own decision-making, the culture that you help set. Um, def- defines the environment of the, or- of the organization. So, um, you know, if you look at, at the Cubs, for example, um, you know, we don't have a representative number of African-American employees, um, especially for a team in a city like Chicago, but we just don't. And we might be up to major league averages in those areas, but, but that's nowhere near good enough. And that's part of the problem is that as you know, now you look a little bit more broadly beyond the Cubs and you look at major league baseball and, and our numbers aren't, aren't nearly good enough. You know, we have two African-American heads of baseball operation, two African-American managers, the percentage of scouts, the percentage of front office people, they just all fall well short, not to mention, you know, the, uh, the, the, the percentage of African-American players in the game, is under eight percent now, so you know that that stuff doesn't happen by by accident. Again, it's, these issues are institutionalized at this point. They're systemic. They're, as I said earlier, they're 
they're everywhere, um, whether you can see them or not. And there's a lot of unconscious bias that goes on. So I just looked at my own decision making, and you know, I've hired, I've I've hired a lot of you know African American people and, and, and people from all different races and backgrounds. But you know, if if I'm being honest with myself and in my time at the Cubs, I said the other day, I'm not um, afraid to, to say it again. Like what, you know, th- there've been a lot of key decisions where I end up hiring someone who looks like me or with a similar background as me. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's a default for a lot of people uh, and a dangerous default because you end up falling back on the comfort of the familiar. Um, and, 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 and when you, when you do that, you don't end up with a diverse enough organization. You do that, you don't end up with diversity of perspective or experience or opinion as well, and, and, and you can't be quite as effective that way. So I just thought um, that needed to be said because I thought if I called myself out on it, maybe it would, um, just for a split second, also have you know, cause others in baseball to take a look inside as well at their own unconscious biases to see if they're there and see if, See if you know collectively we take a moment and, and try to change. I really love that you and Kenny Williams are connected on this initiative, and that was one of the people that that you reached out to because I mean his background, you know, how he grew up is really important to this. And I feel like your approach and and the way that he goes about things, I think it makes for a, a dynamite combination. And I'm glad to see that there have been that baseball as a whole has kind of jumped in on this. So so where do you think this goes from here inside baseball? Yeah, I think, you know, the the symbolic gesture we made at the draft with the 30 baseball decision makers holding up the placards that said Black Lives Matter matters and, and United for Change and then the donation that we made ended up totaling with the matching over a million dollars uh, to, to five racial justice organizations. That was a really important step, but just the first step. Um, and it, that's something that we all acknowledge. I'm really proud of the group of, of 30 heads of baseball operations. It's hard to get this group to agree on anything. Uh, everyone's in different, different circumstances within their own organization and at different points in their careers, but everybody was willing to stand up and make, make that statement. Um, and, and so in recognizing that as the first step, I think we all, also, we also, we all agreed to, to look, uh, to listen, first of all, listen to our players, listen to our coworkers with different backgrounds and different perspectives than us, then to look inward and examine whether there are things we can do better, um, such as try to identify and then eliminate, uh, the, the unconscious biases we have when it comes to, to hiring, for example, and then that there's plenty, uh, plenty of action items that we can uh, that we can work on within the game. Um, you know, there are there are some great programs already in place that we can support. There's a diversity fellowship through Major League Baseball. There's uh, they've done terrific work with uh, the Urban Youth Academies and the RBI programs. But usually those have been somewhat um, separate from baseball operations, and we have you know, huge baseball operations infrastructures that can support these programs. It doesn't necessarily need to fall to, you know, the community relations programs to, to do that. But more, more than anything, I think it's, uh, you know, st- standing up, speaking out, and, and being willing to listen, being willing to have the uncomfortable conversations, um, 
and, and that attitude will be reflected in our decision making. It will be the pursuit of justice. If we can all keep that at the forefront, racial justice, if we can keep that at the forefront of our minds, will be reflected in the environments that we create within our organization as leaders. And, and then uh, it'll be created. It'll be reflected in the clubhouse too. You know, it's been really disturbing and powerful to hear some of the best players in the game who are African-American speak up recently about being uncomfortable in their own clubhouses. And that, that's something that we have to all in the game take, take responsibility for and try to change. I think that starts with, with our attitudes and it starts with getting, as Kareem said, getting this out in the light so we can all see it and fix it. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.